Welcome, everybody, to the Uncensored CMO. Now, this is a very special edition of the podcast. It was recorded actually as a webinar we did around at System One called Ritson on Recession with Mark Ritson and a guest appearance from Orlando Wood. Now, if you haven't worked out that we are heading very quickly into a recession, where have you been? You literally can't go anywhere without getting told just how bleak the future looks at the moment. We've got rising input prices, inflation rampant at the moment, demand being squeezed. We've got all the tech companies seemingly kind of losing value by the day. It's incredibly difficult time to be a marketer. Now, many of us, I know we've just been through COVID, but a lot of us won't have been through an extended recession, the likes of which we're about to go through. So what should we be doing? How can marketing step up and lead? And I really, really believe passionately that it is the marketer's role to lead the organization, to be thinking long-term and to be doing all the strategy and tactics that are gonna help lead the brands and the organization out of these troubled times. I also think as well that actually a recession is a brilliant opportunity to take market share from your competitors. Why not use the opportunity when all around you, people are distracted, they're cutting costs, they're panicking, they're trying to react. This is the moment for clear, bold leadership and marketing can provide it. This was an absolute blast of a conversation. So without further ado, let's get into this episode, Ritson on Recession. So welcome, everybody. Thank you, Mark, for joining us all the way 1am from Tasmania. That's commitment for you right there. Look, I, I don't want to get too depressed on this on this webinar, so I thought I'd just throw up a, a little Ayrton Senna quote just to get us in a positive frame of mind here. And I don't know if you've come across this. I, I discovered it this week, but apparently Ayrton Senna used to say, it's impossible to overtake 15 cars when it's sunny. It's a lot easier when it's raining, which I thought was a, a kind of pretty apt quote for what we want to do today. So, Mark, I thought maybe let's start with kind of what's been your experience of kind of recessions in your career, maybe 2008. What was it like for you? I mean, I'm old enough that I started working the last major recession in, I think, what, what, when would it have been? 1990, I think. I was working in London. So I sort of saw it in the real world then. But, you know, the last two, which would be what, 08 and then COVID, I've lived in Australia and Australian recessions don't really exist. You know, there's this famous crack about Australia. It's the lucky country, which is actually a massive insult. It's meant to infer that we're stupid, right? <laughs> and we, we got lucky, but we did. I mean, there's a strong argument that's debated a little bit. It's been 30 years since there's been anything like a proper recession in Australia. Wow. So, yeah, 1990 is the only time I can remember being in London, working on Marlebone Road, and it feeling pretty down at heel. Talking about COVID there, this feels very different. Do you think this experience for us as, as marketers is going to feel different to COVID that we've just been through just in the last couple of years? Yeah, I think it's very different. So COVID doesn't really count in a weird way, right? It, it was an artificially induced recession. Obviously, we were all more concerned about other things other than the economy. It was <laughs> yes. pretty dicey there, right, for a while. Yeah. So it, I think there was always that sense that that it was one step removed from a proper, fully-fledged economic recession. It was kind of exogenous. Yeah, I think, however, the main role of COVID is it now makes the current proper recession that's coming up in the UK far more telling. I mean, I was in the UK last month. I have never felt anything like it. Mm. I mean, it was three years since I'd been home, but the combination, the death of the Queen, chaotic Mm. stuff politically, obviously coming out the back of COVID, obviously Brexit, and then this impending recession, 
I've never seen anything like it. It was a tangible sense that there was something brewing and it was negative. Yeah. And, and you can see it, by the way, if you look at the consumer confidence indices, the various ones for the UK, we are now significantly below where we were during the worst of COVID. So mm. whether it's an economic recession or not doesn't matter. What we care about is market orientation. And if you look at any of the data, what it suggests is consumers are already far more pessimistic and worried now than they were right in the middle of, of the COVID crisis. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, we'll have to wait a little bit longer to declare a recession in the UK, not too much longer. But we're going into, you know, as the Bank of England have told us, probably the worst recession in, in living memory. Now, couple of years, wind back a couple of years ago in COVID, we, we had a lot of debate about how brands responded, didn't they, in terms of you know their decisions on investment and other things and tactics and so on. Who do you think did a good job in COVID and who didn't do a good job? Well, the top of my charts throughout had, had been P&G. I, lo- I mean, I'm a huge P&G fan. They invented brand management. And then you had this wonderful moment where John Moller, the CFO, showed all these pathetic CMOs how to do it. Like he went around all the media channels. He wasn't yet the CEO. He's still the CFO and I think COO as well. And he basically showed everyone else how it's done. And he, he explained, look, P&G's been around a long time. We've been through crises before. We have a literally have a playbook for this. This isn't a time to pull back. We're actually going to double down because this is the moment where we prove ourselves. Yeah. And you had all these CMOs. You know, there's been this literature, John, for 15 years now that leadership is empathy and feeling each other's fucking pain and all that bullshit. That's not what being a leader is. Being a leader is making a good call, right or wrong, and everyone to follow, right? So here's Moller doing it while we've got all these CMOs running these tinkly piano ads about feeling each other's pain and looking out of windows and we'll get through this together, horseshit. And so, yeah, for me, P&G, it was brilliant watching them show everyone else how to do it. And their results very much backed that up subsequently. They had a good, a very good run. So I put P&G at the top. I think Coke was shithouse. I think Coke made no sense to me at all. I think they pulled, I forget how much it was, but I, I think about 35, 40% of their global ad spend. And the arguments they made for pulling it made no sense at all to me. So, you know, I, I thought that was a classic example of, of Coca-Cola not being very good. And I was a bit disappointed. So they were probably my winner and my loser overall, I thought. And But generally, I thought most marketers, most cheap CMOs were shown up for the <laughs> useless wastes of chair that many of them yeah. are. They didn't do anything. Well, we're going to come back to Tingly Pianos in, when we talk to Orlando, because we'll, we'll, we'll reference that back. But there was a, there was a report by Clear M&C Saatchi that I, I wanted to kind of quote to you and get your thoughts on. So it was really interesting. This is going back to the beginning of 2021. They did some mm. interviews, 700 CEOs, about the role of the CMO. Very interesting. And they said in a crisis, 59% of them expected the CMO to increase their influence and step up. Only 4% expected decline. And then what was interesting in their conclusions, that they made four points at the end, which I thought was really fascinating. They said the four biggest issues in a crisis, number one, strategy gets stuck in the boardroom. Number two, there's alignment on goals, but not on tactics. Number three, too much focus on the short term. Number four, marketing becomes overstretched in capability and, and capacity as well, right? I thought that was very interesting. So sorry to throw four things at you at once, but do you think- No, no, um, it's, it's, it's remarkably good, right? I mean, we've spent- Again, the last 15 years, blaming CFOs for not understanding marketing budgets and CEOs and all that. It's total horseshit, right? 
The problem lies with marketers not making a proper case and not being good at their jobs. And during COVID, Scott Galloway said something very perceptive. He said the good CMOs, and we do have a few of them, were actually demonstrating market orientation. So they stepped up and they let the rest of the leadership board understand what their consumers were going through using research that they were able to collect. The useless ones were worrying about whether to go on Instagram or TikTok to make their next ad. Do you know what I mean? We forget that the prime directive of a marketer all the way up to CMOs is to represent the consumer in the place where decisions are made. And I think that idea that the CEO was waiting for the CMO to step up, they weren't looking for them to step up and come up with a nice TikTok ad. They were looking for them to let the rest of the team know this is what's going on. This is what we can expect. This is what she's thinking right now in the real world. And, and we forget that prime directive at our peril. And as we go into a recession, the main job for marketers, first and foremost, is to capture this changing picture and bring it into the organization because we will have to change some of our strategy, some of our execution. And it's the marketer's job to, to show the rest of the organization how things are changing. That's a really, really powerful point. Now, now, anytime I've been in this situation, the first thing that's happened, the moment recession or tough times get signaled, the CFO is on the phone going, right, we're going to cut the AMP budgets immediately because, or you sat in the board table and everyone's looking around going, right, who's got some budget we can save here? Now, you know, we love to talk about investment, don't we? But thought before I'd ask you about how we make the case for investment, it might be quite a good idea to poll the audience here and just find out you know, how the audience are doing on this one. So, and actually I've broken this down into two little questions just to see how much we're learning. So the first question is during COVID, did your business increase investment, maintain it or decrease it? And the same question as you sit here today, as we, as we go through, as we look ahead to recession, same questions again, I'd love you to vote on it. We'll, we'll give it 30 seconds to get a response. Mark, do you think we'll have improved Yes. I'm a huge believer that we've, as a combined industry, done a really good job for once of communicating the core messages about how to handle communications during a recession. And I don't think we've ever handled it well before. I think the messages are very clear. I'm slightly annoyed with the various experts that, I mean, look, most of this, as usual, follows from Peter Field, right? Peter Field is a very quiet, humble guy, but actually he's pretty much invented everything, right? And if you follow what he's been saying for a very long time, since 2008, that playbook is spot on, right? I mean, it comes out of 100 years of data, but Peter's been very clear. I get a little frustrated. Everyone has to have some kind of different fucking angle on it. Oh, well, it's not quite (laughs) that simple. It it really is pretty much that simple. Obviously, if you haven't got any money, don't spend it on brand building and marketing. Oh, I mean, fucking obvious, right? Yeah, yeah. But generally speaking, this idea that in a recession, everyone else blinks and pulls back. And if you don't, you'll come out stronger when things start to pick up is a clear message that I think most businesses, at least at the marketing level, now understand. Whether they can communicate upstairs is a different question, but I think the marketing industry deserves a pat on the back because that message has got through this time. But let's see what your poll says. Yeah, let's see. Here we go. So increase investment, COVID 20%, 
26% now, 45% maintained. Oh, it's very similar, actually, very, very similar. So we're looking at a close to half, 40, 45% maintain, 20% increase, 35% decrease. So slightly more on the decrease and increase. That's pretty decent, actually. I think given that you know most people will be facing less demand, more constraint, the CFO screaming at them, that's probably reasonable, actually, I'd say. I think it's very reasonable, John. I mean, the other argument we can make, which is a slightly more complex argument, is there are categories where, ironically, not your long-term brand building, but your short-term yeah. performance probably should be cut back because there isn't that much demand in the market for furniture or building supplies or anything. So there is a case for saying to some degree that there are industries that should pull back more on the short, for sure. So I think that that result speaks volumes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely does. I wanted to flash up a quick visual, actually, from the, the other great source of data has been our friends at Ehrenberg Bass doing the research on what happens when brands stop advertising. Now, I know this wasn't in recession they did this, but I think it's quite telling. And they were looking at what happens when brands stop advertising and, and the difference between small, medium and large brands. So th- th- this is, I mean, you see this on ESOB, Mark, don't you as well? The the The, the challenge a small brand has when they you know when they go dark and how quickly that decline happens it's quite stark yeah i mean it's great data i don't think it's the main argument for, for maintaining spend right i mean i think yeah it's one of it's one of the more minor arguments you're going to lose 15 points of your sales right if you cut back yeah there's a bigger argument about brand building but it's still a very powerful you know and and, and very important statistic And as you say, what it also underlines, which is a point we should never stop making, small brands, it's not fair, right? It's never been fair marketing. Small brands get fucked about four different ways that big brands don't. And it isn't just about big brands having more money. It's not just that. Small, I mean, I get asked it all the time at conferences. I work for Mm. a small brand. I can't do what you're talking about. I can't spread my money and get excess share of voice. So what do I do? And I always say to them, well, you stay small then, don't you? Because you've got no shot. And and they look at you as if that's, you know, well, there must be some kind of fix for being a small brand. And there isn't. Capitalism mm. is not fair. Small brands get fucked many different ways. And it's rare to see one making it into that bigger scale sized opportunity. Yeah. yeah. I would get, let's go back to, to Peter for a second, talk about the long and the short bit as well, because I, mm. I think this is fascinating. You know, obviously with your training, we're, we're all taught about ESOV and how that works in terms of predicting share change in the future. What happens when a recession hits? Does, what happens to that ESOV model in a recession? So we have to, so there's a couple of things here that I love, right? There's, the, marketing Twitter is full of people who claim to have invented things they haven't invented, right? And Les and Peter, Field and Burnett, invented ESOV. I mean, they didn't invent the, the, the core concept. It's probably John Paul Jones, but they came up with ESOV. They're just too humble to admit it, right? That's how, that's how cool those two are. The point about ESOV is it's got nothing to do with recession, right? There's a peculiar relationship, an almost one-to-one relationship between your share of voice and your share of market. They're pretty much the same. Except again, if you're a small brand, because you have to spend more, have a higher excess share of voice just to maintain your share of market. Because once again, if you're a small brand, you get extra fucked, right? But what happens if you overspend, if you overinvest in your comm, so you get excess, so you have more share of voice than your share of market, and you maintain that for many years, and the market does not respond, if you can maintain that excess, 
you will eventually grow your market share. This is relevant in the case of recessions because what typically happens, and we've seen it in COVID most recently, is when a major recession hits, most brands cut back. 20, 30% of them go dark. There's a 20, 30% cut in overall ad spend. And so what happens is the market essentially spends less. The share of voice 100% is less. If you can then maintain your spend, I know I'm not sure about increasing it, but if you can maintain your spend in that situation, obviously your relative share of voice simply by standing still goes up and all the rules of ESOV still apply, you will get growth, especially when the recession ends and when growth returns, because you can't just turn on your brand building efforts overnight. Obviously, it takes one, two, three years for it to have its full impact. So what happens is the brands that maintain their spend do a little bit better in the recession, thanks to ESOV, and do a lot better when inevitably the recession ends. And there is an inarguable case. There is a hundred years of data, most recently from Peter Field, to make exactly that point. And even Ehrenberg Bass, who, whose you know, motto, as you may know, is if it's not invented here, it's a bag of shit. <laughs> even they believe in ESOV. I mean, they don't say it because they're pissed off that it's, <laughs> it's true. But even they've tried to publish a paper where they grudgingly at the end go, yeah, it's kind of true anyway, whatever, let's move on. I think that's the, the point we always need to remember is it's so easy to become short term, isn't it, when you're faced with a crisis and, and everything going on. But, but it's, it, what Peter shows brilliantly is that it's the long term payback that you get. You come out of recession quicker. You know, I think I think those that don't invest, I think, take up to five years to recover. I look back at the work just to get the three points on business results. He, he talked about those that invest through recession, four times the share growth, five times the business effects. 38% more profit. And this is a key point, John. And as I get older, I think I become more convinced of it. I think too many marketers try to justify investing in marketing, investing in brand, using their own kind of internal trajectory and data and everything else. And it's very difficult to do. And I don't think you need to do it. I think what you have to do is look at the empirical data from other similar industries and brands exactly what you're showing here, and use that in the boardroom to say, look, we've been here before, hundreds of other businesses. Everybody forgets Field & Burnett is not 60-40. It's built on hundreds of case studies. Yes, they're prize winners, whatever. There's hundreds of empirical case studies to show to your team to explain, as you see here, you maintain 8% or more excess share of voice in a recession, you pick up triple what you would get if you were to just essentially do a little bit more. Use the data, use the case studies. It's one of the key messages. Don't look within for explanations for defending your budget. Look around you at the existing case studies, CFOs, buy this data. Yeah, they really, really do. It's so powerful. And uh, look, Mark, we, we, we've we've gone to in you know investment and communication. Of course, that's what we as marketers love that part of that 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 P. There are other P's to play with as well, aren't there? So, what else should marketers be thinking about when they're looking at their kind of recession response? Well, let's start, John, with the key point. Right, if you follow my logic, which is pretty good logic, I have to say, the whole advertising thing is about eight percent of marketing. Put it yeah. in its little box, right? Its little heart-shaped box. Okay, sub ten percent. Let's remember that. 
So where does it send you for the other 92%? As I said to you earlier, it sends you, first of all, back to research and diagnosis. In a recession, your first job is to take the temperature of the market as it inevitably changes and feed that back into the organization. Your second job is to revisit your marketing strategy. Never mind tactics, right? A recession creates endogenous effects which require you not necessarily to change, but to consider changing marketing strategy. Now, that's a problem for a lot of brands for the one particular reason that they don't have any fucking marketing strategy to change, right? So maybe it's a time to come up with one, right? But for good marketers out there, strategy comes down to targeting, positioning, and objectives. All of those need to be reconsidered in the face of recession. So a strategic review. yeah. And then finally, to your point, the the other Ps still need to play a role. Do we change our product formulation? Do we change how we offer it? Yeah. Do we alter distribution? And crucially, do we look at pricing? Because pricing is in a recession, particularly one with stagflation, is a really important issue for marketers. Yeah. Well, I wanted to talk about that because I mean, when I, when I studied economics back in the nineties, the idea that you'd have a recession and raging inflation was a rather was thought to be you know impossible. Mm. And then here we are with crazy cost price inflation at the same time as an economy that started to contract. Right. That's a very unusual set of circumstances. So, how should marketers approach that that kind of double dilemma of driving demand, but also prices going up at unseen levels? So, treat treat them separately, right? So, you've got your standard recession play, but we've talked about it. It's about trying to maintain budgets where relevant. When we get to inflation, and, and I think we're at eighteen percent, aren't we, in the UK or something? It's it's mental, whatever it is, right? I mean, I think it's double digits. It's it's well above double digit, right? So. What does that mean? It means you've lost 10, 15 points of of profitability by standing still as everything else goes up. Inevitably, therefore, you will have to raise prices. The problem now we get to is many marketers are not involved in pricing in their organizations because the organizations don't include them and the marketers are absolutely fucking useless, right? They're the coloring in department. So why do we need marketers involved in pricing? There's a couple of reasons. First of all, they're not in charge of pricing. They've never been in charge of pricing. They shouldn't be in charge of pricing, but they should be round the table. When you work on pricing, the three things that become very clear very quickly is pricing is about setting the price, the research and the process that goes into it. Then there's the price itself. And then finally, there's the communication frames and communicates the price or the price rise. That first point, the research that goes into price. If you don't have marketers involved, you look at competitors, you look at costs, which are always the wrong things to look at. Pricing is about value, and a lot of the value comes from customers. So we need marketers there. And of all the things that are important in pricing, the way we communicate and frame the price is far more important than the price itself. Again, we need marketers that can help with the, you know, I don't believe in behavioral economics much, I think it's hand conjuring. It's counterintuitive little little conjuring tricks, right? But where it has a massively important role to play is in the framing effects around how we present a price and how we frame it properly. And for that, again, we need marketers involved. So for me, this is a moment. And again, look, there's a great playbook on how to set and increase a price. It's a marketing playbook. And if I was a, a senior level marketer who's trying to get one further level up, this is a moment 
she or he can really make their impression on the rest of the organization. Study how to do a price rise. I did a nice article a month ago in Marketing Week that summarized the literature and get in there and help everyone out. Because I'm yeah. telling you, they don't understand the intricacies of price. You need a marketer's touch. Yeah, really well said. Another article I, I looked at that I thought was really helpful in this is the Roaring Out of Recession, eight, you know, Harvard Business Review article as well. Seminal article. Absolutely brilliant. I mean, during COVID, that was my go-to. One of the things they talked about, I think they found only 9% of companies coming ahead came out of recession in a better position than they went in. But the winners they identified were those that balanced operational efficiency also with innovation and opening up new markets as well. And that's the other thing as well, of course, in recession to think about is how the market has changed and how you can you know, adapt your proposition and products, et cetera, et cetera, to fulfill new demand, I suppose, or change in demand and respond to it. Yeah, look, it, it involves being able to chew gum and walk at the same time, right, as an organization. You have to learn to strip back elements that, frankly, you can't justify in tough times. But the point of the Noria article in, in HBR is that when you really look at the companies that do well, they, they cut back, but they reinvest, as you say, in things like innovation, opening up new markets, and crucially, in marketing. Now, that's yeah. an article written by some very famous economists from Harvard, not a single marketer amongst them. Yeah. And when they've studied empirically, the companies that yeah. came out more successfully, message one is learn to cut back and cut the fat. And message two is and invest a lot of it in marketing, right? That's a hell of a thing to have on our side as we, again, go upstairs to try and justify maintaining budgets. So I think that's a paper that you should you know, share with everyone. It's free on HBR usually. And it's, again, it, it's, Again, I want to make the same point. It's not some guy sitting in an office in Cambridge, Massachusetts, pulling shit out of his ass, right? It's based on an empirical analysis of hundreds of firms that went into the last recession showing what the right firms did. It's a powerful empirical argument that you can use yeah. in your defense. And as we were talking about earlier, I mean, you know, you're winning the battle in the boardroom. You've got Harvard Business Review on your side. It's very credible to go in with the data. So it just helps you win those battles you need to win. But, but John, the key point for me is I think marketers must stop looking within to make the case for brand and for marketing. They need to look outside and pull on these case studies, as you say, which are far more powerful and will make the case for them. That, I think that's a key lesson for me over the last six months. That definitely it. Now, I want to come back to Tinkly Piano Music, right? And, and, and maybe bring Orlando in at this point, because when COVID hit, suddenly we had an avalanche of Tinkly Piano Music in these times and all this kind of thing. And actually, uh, some work that Orlando did, he looked at the communication before and after COVID to see how, it, you know, how consumers had responded and because we got asked the question at System One by everybody, can I still use my old communication? If I change my communication, what should I be saying? There's a massive amount of uncertainty, and, and you know, understandably so. I thought before I just bring Orlando in to have a quick chat about that, we might go to another poll because I'm quite interested to know to what extent have people on this call changed their creative in response to the current recession? So, are you planning to change it? Have you changed it? Or are you planning to reuse old creative, maybe because your budget's being cut, et cetera? So uh, yeah, go to the poll now. We'll give it 30 seconds and then and then round it up. But Mark, one of the things we've been asked quite by quite a few of our customers, actually, 
is, you know, what old creative they can do, kind of wear in versus wear out, which I think is quite interesting, an interesting one to get into. But I'll I'll get Orlando's thoughts on that because we've we've done some work on it in the last few weeks to try and answer for people. But you know, it, it does cause people to now. Now, most marketers don't need an excuse to change creative. I think it's like any right. excuse to kind of you know brief brief something new in. No, and they're fa- look, they're famous for it, right? I don't think there's a campaign that was ever given enough legs by any marketer ever in the history yeah. of the world. They're always prematurely pulling it because, of course, again, it's a failure of market orientation. They get sick yeah. of their ads because they've seen it 8,000 times and they've looked at it like this, you know, like, I'm looking at every pixel. Yeah. What they forget is the consumer hardly notices it, yeah. sees it twice, partially, forgets it. And it's genuinely lost. And and again, for me, it's a failure of market orientation that so many marketers pull so much of their campaigns prematurely yeah. when their best days were yet to come. Yeah, yeah, couldn't agree more. Right, so 3% plan on using old creative, 40% plan to adapt creative, 35% keep it the same, 22% they've already changed. Okay, so most people are changing. Uh, 35% are sticking. It's a bit dangerous, John, right? Because I think, again, the message for brand building is you may need to change your message, but I don't think so, right? I think the long brand messages should be maintained. And I'm pretty sure System 1 data during COVID bore most of that out. I think there is a case for more shorter-term, performance-based, sales-based messages where there might be a different target. There might be a slightly different positioning message. There are certain themes you might want to turn the volume up. The, the you know we know that family and nostalgia play better in those in those particular moments right so i think there's a case maybe for the shorter term stuff reflecting a different reality we're maybe seeing it already at christmas time i'm always a little worried when brands want to completely change their overall brand campaigns because you know the world is changing i like a 10 year brand campaign right i think that's about long enough for it to start working when you start moving it around because of a recession or something, I, I worry that something's gone wrong. Well, Mark, I think we're going to please you in the next section because we've got a very, very long-running example, Orlando. So this is a perfect opportunity for me to bring Orlando in. Orlando is the magnificent author of Lemon and Lookout that was published in conjunction with the IPA. Brilliantly brings together neuroscience, work of Dr. Ian McGilchrist, two, three, four hundred years of art history and culture as well, which is a uniquely Orlando feature. But he blends that together with the latest data from the IPA and also System One database to analyze in quite forensic detail the features of advertising that lead to effectiveness uh, and emotional response. So I don't think anyone else on the planet understands this probably better than, than, than Orlando. But Orlando, what can we learn from the past that might inform the future? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, there are some general principles, first of all, that I think it's important to, to dwell on. The work I do connects kind of attention and emotion with the type of creative that you, you know, that you air. And I've shown, you know, in the work, this is just a chart from one of the, one of the books, look out the relationship between the features in advertising and their, its ability to, to connect with audiences. And what you tend to see is that it's people, character, incident, place, as I call it, music, something happening in a real defined space, in a real place that people can relate to that tends to, to connect with people. And that, the kind of style of advertising, you know, that we associate perhaps more with performance advertising actually causes people to look away, you know, close up stuff, words on the screen, mm. sharp cuts. 
And when you look at this in relation to business effect data, as I've done with Peter on the IPA's database, you see that it's these sort of, as I call them, right-brained campaigns for broad beam attention that generate, more likely to generate, these sales gain, profit gain, share gain. Um, and these left-brained campaigns are much less able to do that. And so, you know, as uh, when you think about times of recession, when brand building advertising is very important for inflationary times and also recessionary times, you know, Les has a lovely quote uh, that use the irrational power of creativity to make budgets go further. And this is actually what I'm talking about here with these sort of right brain features that involve the living. So, so, you know, I've been looking back, you know, it's kind of, we're kind of in 1973 here, aren't we? Because we've got strikes and layoffs, inflation's rising energy crisis. And so I just want to show an ad from 1973 uh, and talk about it. Have a look. As good for you today as it's always been. And actually, the ads, to borrow from its own strap line, is as good today as it's always been. You know, we tested it this summer, the, the retouched, restored version, and it gets 4.9 stars. And why is that? Why has it got such enduring appeal? Well, when you look at it, it's based, it's got two different sort of locations in it. The first one has got depth, it's got distance, it's got the lonely boy walking up the hill with his bike. There's atmosphere, so the cobbles, the mists in the background, there's a fleeting moment in time that it captures. And it's also got music, which, much like the visuals, is much like the, the, the you know, comes from the romantic period, very, very sensitive, a romantic sensibility to it. And you look at the interior shots, and it's very much like a Vermeer painting, that light on the faces that creates a kind of intimacy that draws us in. So, you know, these are, this is a romantic ad in the best spirit of the word, and it connects, continues to be popular through the centuries, actually, this kind of art and this kind of, kind of creativity. So, you know, if you've got an ad that you know performs well, Continue to use it, you know, as Mark says, you know, these things last and they're unlikely to change. I was, uh, you mentioned the retest 100 that we did, John. Well, what we did in COVID was we had, and Mark referenced this a moment ago, we tested some ads that aired just before COVID hit, 100 ads, 50 in the UK, 50 in the US. And then we retested them a couple of times actually during COVID. And we just retested the same ads again in the last month. And you can see that the correlations stay the same. So the test results stay the same pretty much through these, this remarkably turbulent period. And so the results I'm showing on the screen now, this plot, scatter plot here, just shows you the latest wave of this retesting. Scores don't change very much. Performance of these ads doesn't change very much. And actually, there's probably a little, little bit less movement at the top end of the scale than there is at the bottom end of the scale. So, you know, it, it does show that you can continue using the same, the same work. And, you know, actually, there's a lot we can learn from this test too about the kind of advertising that works in this period. So actually, when you look at the, the, the performance of the ads that have each of these features, funnily enough, set in the past is right at the top. But music, a hugely important and effective thing to think about. Clear sense of place, characters, people doing things, and the living, of course, too. So uh, these left brave features, you know, clustering at the bottom left here, and nothing much changes. You know, these are the features that always work and that they continue to work in, these, in this period. 
So what this reminded me of was some of the Christmas advertising, John. So, you know, a lot of these Christmas ads that are performing very well at the moment actually tap into some of this stuff, the nostalgia referencing of other things. You know, the elf for Asda is referencing the film from a company 20, 30 years ago, but also these fluent devices that I talk about in consistency of characters that, or scenarios you know, that repeated again and again and again, Aldi being a fantastic example. And one of the great things about Aldi, I think, is that whereas you get sometimes one-hit wonders with some companies and brands and their advertising every year with Christmas, Aldi just continue to hit the kind of five-star with their fluent device, Kevin the Carrot character, really, really effective. So that's, these are just you know some observations, really. And so we've got you know kind of few... Closing thoughts on the creative, which I thought we'd just, just run through. I mean, is ad wear out a myth is kind of the question we left, we're left with here, because actually, in, even in times of crisis, you know, the ability of an ad to connect in the way that it always has seems pretty consistent. We think, you know, it's pretty important that brand building remains on the, on the cards, if, if at all possible. Um, it's important in times of inflation and recession because it helps to support your pricing and to emerge stronger on the other side. And if you can't be sure, or uh, if you're trying to, you can't secure new investment in ad, and you know, it might, you might be better off repurposing or reusing an ad from the past. So there are just some investment thoughts there. And then on the creative itself, I thought that perhaps three more things. First of all, I think character incident and place is really important. Fluent devices that use people connecting, showing relationships between people, this consistency of approach again and again, really important. And actually character fluent devices help to reduce price sensitivity too. I'm showing that in my work. Secondly, I think we also need to think about probably nostalgia. You mentioned nostalgia and family, but also music. Great. Tobis was a very good example of that. This was actually Patax and you can they, their scores have improved in this period too. And then finally, humor. Let's not forget humor. As G.K. Chesterton put it, humor can get in under the door while seriousness is still fumbling at the handle. And humor can be a highly creative, a highly effective creative approach. And actually, audiences appreciate it. And they appreciate this sense of continuity, comfort, reassurance, you know, in these times. So just a few thoughts from me. Orlando, thank you very much. That's tremendously useful. I'm, I'm going to do a couple of quick plugs now, and then we'll get into Q&A. So firstly, just to say, well, I've got a conversation with Orlando coming out a week on Monday. We're going to delve into this topic in a bit more detail, reveal some breaking research from System 1, which will talk in quite a lot of detail about how to ad adapt and use creativity in times of a crisis that we're going through as well. And then lastly, as well, just to say, if you're unsure about whether your ad will work in a recession or and you want to test it, you only need to ask. So the system one, we test advertising very quickly, very cost-effectively, and hopefully very usefully give you the sort of diagnostics that will help you make a good decision. A little thing to say as well, we have a free to view place on our website, testyourad.com. You can see live how all the Christmas campaigns are doing right now. So if you want to keep an eye on whether anyone's going to overtake Asda at the top of the charts, we haven't yet seen the Aldi Kevin the Carrot results or the John Lewis results yet, so they're coming out probably today. But keep an eye on the top spot and see how that changes over the next few weeks. All righty. So plugging over, we're now going to jump to Q&A. We've got about 50 questions, so I'm not going to just actually one point of clarity. So Rupert's kindly said that inflation is 10.8% at the moment in the UK. So just a 
a quick question on that. I might go to Orlando first, then the rest of them are probably for you, Mark. So a couple of people have talked about whether the relationship, ESOV relationship, is breaking down because you, Karen, and Peter are on stage at Cannes this year yep. talking about triple jeopardy. So how can you explain that to people? Because I think it's some interesting insight. It still holds, but it's a little. It, Peter's noticed that it's a little bit weaker than it was, and it was down to the three things that we talked talked about you know budget shifting towards performance advertising which doesn't establish that or continue to maintain that mental availability low attention media being bought which doesn't put your brands into long-term memory because you've only got a couple of seconds probably for the creative to work and it doesn't really work very well in audiovisual terms and thirdly the, the thing that i talk about which is a change in creative style that has shifted much more towards performance advertising in its style so that, you know, even brand building advertising is, is looking a bit like performance advertising some of the time. And we've lost some of the, the the very things that lodge a brand in memory, characters, music, you know, performance, all of those things that, you know, in, in the visuals itself really work. Absolutely. Thank you, Orlando. We might come back to you later, look at questions. Mark, lots and lots of questions, unsurprisingly, because it's a really, really important topic for everybody. Question here, would you recommend investing when you have supply constraints? And it reminded me of a recent conversation I had with Tourism Australia, because of course, they famously advertised even when the country was shut down. So do you have any advice on that? Yeah, it's long and short, John. So I, I worked for a travel company that wasn't doing much business in COVID either. And I desperately tried to get them to keep up some of the brand building stuff. Obviously, you can't do the performance stuff because there's no holidays to sell to go anywhere. So the message would have been if you have supply constraints, temporary ones, clearly you don't want to spend a lot of money on short-term activation stuff because there's nothing to supply or sell. Yeah. But equally clearly, you do want to maintain your brand long investment because, again, yeah. it's going to take you three, four, five years to re- to turn the lights back on if you switch them off. Your competitors are likely to have switched them off. And if they have, you've got yourself a spectacular competitive advantage. And, of course, the idea that you would, if you're in crisis, keep your money in brands, but maybe cut back on activation is the exact inverse of what most companies do under stress. If the marketer isn't powerful enough to explain the right move to make. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much. I've got a few questions on own label, actually, and how that might impact on ESOV, particularly given that in a recession, we know, don't we, that you know, own label usually makes advances in, in, in recession. So how, how would a brand cope with that? Well, it's a, it's a very big topic, right? There's a wonderful chart from about 20 years ago, Steve Hope who's a wonderful Wharton professor who specializes in private label, has this great chart that shows a direct negative correlation with basically American salaries and private label growth and penetration. So essentially, as Americans get paid relatively less, the penetration of private labels goes up and down in perfect symmetry, right? Perfect parallel. And so, yeah, private labels always grow in times of financial stress, and they don't necessarily drop off much when times get good. They usually retain most of their share. So it's kind of one-way traffic. How brands should respond to that is a very long topic. But in a nutshell, what they should do is two things. One, they should have already built brand equity, because the only great defense against a commodity like private label is to already be a strong 
trusted, salient brand that justifies its price premium. You can't start doing that shit when private labels start entrenching on your position. You have to spend the last 10 years doing it. So brand is the ultimate defense to private label. The thing linked to that, which I've seen happen successfully in some cases, is you need to kill the weak in your portfolio and maintain the strong. One of the little known facts about private label is if you look at categories, let's say ketchup, as private label ketchup grows in its market share, the number one ketchup, Heinz, actually does even better as a result of private label. The extremes in the market do fine. And also the retailers need Heinz in order to frame the value and offer of their private label brand underneath it. So the trick for many companies is it's time to kill brands, partly so you can focus on the number one, number two brands that are more private label proof, and partly because you now need to invest even more in brand building in order to protect protect against private label. So if you go back 15 years in the UK, a number four or number five brand in a category was a wonderful thing. Now Mm. it's not wonderful at all because private label has grown 20 points in your category since and and rendered those brands pretty much untenable. So private label is is unfortunately an inevitable consequence of this. And Aldi and Tesco and Lidl, and to some degree, the other great supermarkets will certainly be benefiting. Because remember, again, private labels, we think, we never know this for sure, are more profitable per square foot than selling other people's brands. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Just to say to everyone, there's lots in the chat about can we have links to the HBR article, some of the other stuff we've mentioned, the things that Mark's mentioned. So just to say to everybody, we will collect it all together, gather it and send it out to everybody afterwards. So don't worry about that. There's also people asking how John Lewis have done and how the Audi ad have done. I think Kerry's broken cover in the chat on the scores there. You can see it's very, very top, very, very tight at the top. I won't I won't reveal it, but it's it's a very good Christmas. So well done to Audi. Uh, Mark, a couple of questions coming here. I know you've talked about this a little bit before. Does the advice differ if you're a B2B brand compared to a B2C brand in terms of how you might respond? Not really. I mean, we get this question all the time. And and rightfully, people in B2B get pissed off because we just talk about Aldi and we talk about Tesco and we don't mention B2B. And there's a good reason for that. It's fucking complicated stuff, right? I've spent half my life in B2B and half in B2C. And I can show you a Louis Vuitton handbag and we can get onto the strategic point. But if I explain about working for Baxter in renal dialysis, I need about four hours to explain end-stage renal disease and peritoneal dialysis before I can get to the strategic point. Summarizing a big literature that comes mostly out of the wonderful team at the B2B Institute at LinkedIn, that shit isn't that different from B2C. It really isn't. You look at the key points, ESOV. Salience, system one versus system two, mass marketing, brand building, long and short. I always compare B2C and B2B, chimpanzees and human beings, right? You can decide which is which, that we're 99% genetically the same. And people bang on about, well, what, is it different for B2B? Is it different for services? Is it different for small companies? It is. But people keep referring to B2C as if it's all the same. The difference between selling perfume Mm. and selling handbags and selling watches and selling tobacco and selling yoga is massive. Mm. So I think it's better if we stop worrying about these differences and instead focus on the general corpus of marketing, which is dramatically uniform, albeit with some variations in long and short and 
ESOV ratios and bottom of funnel sales impacts. Sure, it's slightly different, but it is across most businesses. Yeah. I think a lot more B2B marketers should stop wanging on about, but is it the same in B2B? The answer is yes. And a lot of B2B recruiters should start looking at B2C marketers yeah. because it isn't that precious and it isn't that different, frankly. Yeah. It always amuses me this because it's like it's not like we as human beings in a B2B relationship suddenly have a, a head transplant and think and act differently to how we do normally. Uh, we've got someone here who is teaching marketing in the US saying, you know, rampant inflation in the US as well. Should brands increase advertising to support price increases? What's the relationship between increased advertising and sustaining price increases? Oh, look, there is a logic there that I'm aware of. It, it really depends, John, right? I mean, the, the issue with price increases is, are we increasing the price because we've been underpriced? Or are yeah. we increasing the price because of other strategic reasons? You know, have we been under-investing in advertising? So it's very hard to give a, a succinct answer, right? Mm. I would actually treat those two things as separate questions, right? Do we need to increase our price? And do we need to increase our advertising spend? Obviously, they're linked together to some degree, but I would treat them both as separate entities and not look for some kind of lockstep approach. Yeah. Question for Orlando here. Uh, what do you think on Lidl's Bear as a fluent device? Well, I think it's rather nice. There is a sort of postmodern aspect to it, isn't there, where where we're kind of pretending, uh, or I suppose, saying that the that 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 this is we're kind of calling it out almost as a fluent device without using those terms. But it's you know used done consistently every year. Very powerful. Well, well, also it's nice to see some campaigns starting to you know come back. Here. I mean, obviously, Coke trucks is the classic, right? That, you know, 25 years of using that truck. It, I mean, I'm, yeah, I met the CMO once and I was shocked to find out that actually they use up their spare change at the end of the year on that campaign. It's not like a, some big strategic decision, but it's proven time and again, doesn't it? Familiarity. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the worry I would have is system one are causing a problem, right? The quality of your testing and your messages are very clear, I think, and they're having an impact on the industry. But as a result, I think you're t teaching everyone to zig in exactly the right direction, which leads inevitably to zagging that will have to happen soon. You know what I mean? The quality of Christmas ads this year, partly I think down to you guys telling them what works and what doesn't work, means that we are due a zagging event by next Christmas, because when everyone does it well in one direction, it's time to go the other way, right? I mean, one of the, one of the things that I think we've, we tend to see uh, perhaps it's changing, but you know, it, it, Christmas advertising is really, unfortunately, only for Christmas, and it's a shame it doesn't That's last all the way through the year. You know, I mean, it's like the old ad: dogs aren't just for Christmas, but Christmas ads shouldn't be just for Christmas. I mean, if there's a way to continue that through the year with a device that you've created for Christmas, then do it. You know, it's a very good point, Ollie. Very good point. And the same way, you know, I think with the Super Bowl, it's probably. That often they kick off a campaign that will be used, you know, throughout the year, but yeah. not with Christmas. And yeah. and why not? You know, why aren't we seeing these characters used through the year? And that's and and I yeah. think in the UK in particular, we're guilty of letting yeah. just letting it go. I tell you what, that that's that's a real. So you're surprising me, Orlando. I was expecting some good points from you, but that's a really <laughs> yeah. good point. And I don't think of anyone that's doing it, that's taking it out of Christmas and into the rest of the year. It's Even rare though, as to you see. Say, everything we know about advertising effectiveness would say, you've only just begun, keep going. Yeah. yeah. 
Two, yeah. two, two questions for you just to round up because you're just about to hit the hour. So firstly, Orlando, should brands bring old campaigns back? For example, HHCL's iconic fourth emergency service campaign, as an example of a well-known fluent campaign, should brands bring campaigns back? Well, I mean, if if, if it can be done with the, the original panache, sometimes there's an argument for it, I think, or a, a creating it, you know, recreating it for today's world. But, you know, I think those things, they stay in the, they stay in the memory of the public for a very, very long time. And, yeah. you know, there, there is, there is some merit in it, but you've got to make sure that you do it as well as you did it originally. Otherwise it will like a kind of ersatz, you know, replacement or, or half, half a job. So, you know, really has to be done excellently. If there's anyone from the Hilton out of our 3000 people, right? I'm telling you. Take Me to the Hilton is one of the greatest ever lines of all time. And all of your advertising since has been total pants. So what <laughs> you should do, take Orlando's advice. Yes, do it in a modern way, whatever. But when people get back into cabs and go, take me to the Hilton and feel good about it, we're back on track. All of your advertising for the last four years has been shithouse. Never as good as that. Go back to that immediately. And, and my fee, my check is in the post. Well, listen, Mark, we'll end with you. One interesting question here. Why is this stuff not taught in university? Do you really want me to answer it? Because I will. I mean, well, I'm I'm setting it up for you, mate. (laughs) All right. So my dad is a very stupid man. I love him, but he's dumb, right? He's lovely in a dumb way. And he asked me a very clever question once. I was working with all these surgery professors selling medical products, right? And if you're a professor of surgery at NYU or Stanford, You spend four days a week doing surgery and a day a week doing research and teaching. And my dad asked me a question one day. He said, you see all these guys you work with, these professors of surgery, they do a lot of surgery. And I went, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, how come none of those professors you work with at business school ever do any marketing? And I said, oh, it's it's very complex, very hard to explain. But over the years, I've realized he's absolutely right. It is a fucking joke that Mm. people teach marketing who've never done marketing. And what they should do is go and do some fucking marketing before they do any more teaching. And I'll tell you, John, it's a problem for me. I mean, I find myself, to my surprise, running a multi-million dollar business late in my life. It wasn't part of my plan. I don't have time to do any consulting anymore. Yeah. So I'm not doing the work. I'm sitting talking to people like you, right? Like, like this. So it means my life as a teacher, not just as a consultant, has to come to an end. Because I'm not in the work enough to properly be able to train people anymore. We are practical people, practical men and women, right? We're like plumbers. Imagine taking a course in plumbing from someone that had never fucking laid a pipe in their life. That's what happens at universities all over the country. And it's a scandal. And it's a Mm. scandal because, you know, you need to do the work, not necessarily very well. You can learn from mistakes. Christ knows I've demonstrated that. But what we need to do is get practical men and women that have done marketing into classrooms and professors that may be good at marketing. Who fucking knows? They certainly don't. <laughs> Let's put them, give them some jobs to do and see if they can do it. Because I think we're really in a, as much as I dislike Gary V's denigration of education and training, unfortunately, he does have a point, right? That a lot of the education is out of date and worthless. So they're not teaching it because they're not aware of it. And I'll prove it to you, right? If you're a marketing professor, could you, in the Q&A at this moment in time, we've got 600 people left. 
Could you just prove me wrong by saying, I am a marketing professor currently teaching? Not an adjunct, that doesn't count, an actual full-time marketing academic. Let's see if anyone posts, because I'm telling you now, I'll bet you 500 quid, John, there isn't a fucking market lecture in this, in this debate, because they wouldn't be here, because it's too practical. Oh, hang on, Chris Jones. Well done, Chris Jones. Hey, hey, Chris, there's always a fucking exception, mate. And you, you're, you're my outlier, right? You're the outlier on the line, right? Roehampton <laughs> University. And a, ah, he's, a former, he's a former marketer. There you go. Good luck. No, no, but Chris Jones, you, you give me hope, Chris Jones, but you're also a fucking outlier. And we all know there's always one of them. Even Orlando has them on his line charts, if you look at it. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, look, perfect place to end. Mark, thank you so very much for joining us. Thoroughly interesting, entertaining, brilliant, energizing, all of it. And Orlando too, thank you for sharing the benefits of your wisdom. And until next time, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Bye-bye. So ladies and gentlemen, I hope you thoroughly enjoyed that conversation with both Mark Ritson and also Orlando Woods on how to respond to a recession. Now, if you like that and want to hear more, then please do go and subscribe. You can do that over at Apple Podcasts. You can do it at Spotify, Amazon Music. Just hit the subscribe button and never miss an episode again. Um, if you want to get in touch with me, please do. I'm over at Twitter at UncensoredCMO. You can also find me on LinkedIn where I am at John Evans. And if you want to leave me a review, please do. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, it means a great deal and uh, I do read all the reviews. So thank you for listening and I look forward to joining you next time. Thank you.